Jeff and Paul's prayer reminded me of how much we've learned over the years. And that, of course, is a good thing. Um, I don't think that, and this is nothing against those two men. It's, it's a compliment. But I don't think they could have prayed that way 10 years ago. Do you think you? Um, and, and, and just the growth, and that's, that makes me happy to see that you're, you're learning and you're growing. That's obviously my goal. Um, what we're going to talk about today is going to start a, a series, and we'll, we'll see how, how far or how long we go in this particular series. But the handout that you should have should say uh, biblical myths. That at least should be on the, uh, the page. There is a picture there as well. Um, some of you know who, who it is. It wasn't my initial intention, but as I put this together, he, Fred Sanford just kept coming into my mind. Some of you know who that is. And his, uh, his favorite line was, you big dummy. You know, it was always, you big dummy. What are we going to talk about today? we're going to do is we're going to, as I said, start a series uh, which will have of its uh, have as its goal debunking the biblical myths believed by the big dummies of this world. And uh, what I hope to accomplish by this is to, to further your understanding. So the, the points that I made in relation to uh, Jeff and Paul, uh, this is a part of it, just to, to further that. And one of the ways that... Uh, that I am to equip you is to equip you with what you need to be able to answer old, old term, the naysayers, those who would uh, mock what you believe or would uh, somehow try to disregard what you believe is, is false or wrong. And, and uh, that includes uh, things regarding uh, God's word. In other words, what people believe about God's word and its interpretation. You'll notice there, I have part one. I'm not sure uh, if there is going to be a part two, I do have material that uh, I was considering. I don't know that if it, I don't know if it uh, will be necessary. Uh, so if you don't see a part two next week, meaning that we move on to a, a different subject that we are debunking, um, don't worry about it. Uh, having said that, then let's go ahead and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and then we'll we'll jump in. Father, thank you that we've had time already in your word and and every time we, we, we come here, we get to do that, Lord, and we're super thankful for that because we know it's, it's only through your word that we gain the understanding and the wisdom to grow and to navigate a little bit differently than those around us, to order the steps of our lives in a way that is not only pleasing to you, but avoids uh, as much as we possibly can, any uh, self-inflicted wounds. And Father, I pray that that would continue through even what we learn and come to understand here today about your word and what it takes to interpret it. I pray this to the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so what I have here, there, you'll see there's, there's three points. These are essentially three myths, if you will. Uh, that are pretty common today as it relates to God's word or the interpretation of uh, the scriptures. And so uh, what I want to do is just give you those and then explain or respond to them uh, with the biblical support. So here's the first. The scriptures are simple enough that a child can understand them. 
some, maybe all of you have heard that before where uh, people will say that, uh, that they're simple enough that a child can understand them, which means I, I don't need qualified or trained pastors to teach me the scripture. Because if I'm interpreting them correctly, then it's something that even a, a child can do. A child can do. Well, where are they getting this from? Well, uh, the passage normally referred to by those that make this kind of a claim is coming from uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 15. So you can turn there. Mark chapter 10. Verse 15, uh, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Uh, the, uh, as I say here, the, the, the dummy's interpretation of this is the scriptures are so simple that it can be understood or interpreted uh, by children. And I, and I took the time this week to, to, to look that up. So it, it's not like I'm, I'm giving you this verse and saying this is where they're getting it from. This is this is actually what I, I found. And uh, this this kind of a belief is still very popular today. And so how again that they interpret what Jesus is saying here, truly I say to you, who whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. They, they understand that to be speaking about interpretation and that uh, that means that uh, the scriptures are just that simple. They're simple enough that, it, that a child can properly understand or, or, or correctly rather understand them or uh, interpret them. Well, the parallel to what Mark says here in Mark 10 in Matthew's gospel uh, reveals that what Jesus is referring to is uh, not the simplicity or difficulty associated with understanding or interpreting the scriptures, uh, but rather the disposition necessary from those wanting to be saved, uh, or as it says here, enter into uh, the kingdom of God. So turning over there, if you turn over to uh, Matthew's uh, gospel, the specific text is there in the text, Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Verses uh, 1 through 4 at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So slightly different than how uh, Mark communicates it there. He has kingdom of God here. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven. But again, the idea, uh, like children, unless you become like them, uh, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, in verse 4, he tells us, whoever humbles himself like this child. The context is about who will be great or entering into, into heaven. And uh, Jesus says, this is what gets you there. This is what makes you great. Uh, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest uh, in the kingdom of heaven. So uh, entering into the kingdom of heaven or being great in heaven, that's the, that is the subject that Jesus is addressing, not the interpretation of scripture. And uh, what he means by humble, and we've talked about this before, uh, that term in scripture just means submissive or teachable like a child. And this uh, plays very nicely to something that uh, came out of the Reformation, ironically so, a semper reformanda, which just uh, means always reforming. As I said, I believe it was in my prayer uh, earlier, 
uh, in practicum that we are to be disciples. We are to be uh, people who are constantly changing because we're to be a people who are constantly learning. And, and that, of course, has been the case. I mean, even our, our, our study through the Pentateuch and the things that we learned and the change that, that happened as a result of that. Well, that's what God expects of us if we're to enter the kingdom of heaven. We will be and consider and continue to be like children in that respect. We will continue to be submissive and teachable to God's word. We're never just going to, you know, uh, stop and say, this is it. This is as far as we're going. We know everything. No, we're always going to be open to uh, change and expect that as something that happens as we continue uh, to learn God's uh, word. These verses, therefore, have nothing to do with what is required to understand or interpret the Scriptures. When addressing that issue, the Scripture has, uh, the scripture themselves bear witness to their difficulty on more than one occasion. To their difficulty. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, for example, Peter writes, And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul, Brother Paul, also wrote to you, wrote scripture to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destructions, to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scripture. By the way, notice that uh, uh, Peter is here recognizing Paul's letters as scripture. This is a, a text, actually, that uh, supports that, that what Paul wrote was indeed inspired uh, because uh, Peter, the apostle of Peter, uh, refers to them here or identifies them in that way here. Uh, his letter, or his letters, rather, uh, scripture. Uh, but notice in the key piece, or, or the piece that we're concerned with most now, is that uh, Peter uh, says that they are, or at least some things in them, are hard to understand. Hard to understand. Not so simple uh, that even a child uh, can uh, understand them or interpret them. Uh, Acts uh, 29. Acts 29, another text just by way of example of this. Uh, or excuse me, Acts 8. Sorry, Philip uh, in the Ethiopian uh, eunuch. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this uh, chariot. Uh, this is a, a chariot uh, that uh, is occupied uh, by uh, an Ethiopian eunuch, verse 27, a court official of Candace. Uh, he is uh, returning from Jerusalem, and he is reading, we're told, uh, verse 28, the prophet Isaiah. Verse 30, and so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand? And he said, Well, surely I do. Even a child can understand. How can I? Notice, how can I? Unless someone guides me. Now, we're going to talk about, we're going to really uh, unpack this, not, not this particular passage, but really what, what the Ethiopian eunuch understands here. Uh, and, and so I, I really want you to just, just for a second, at the very least, just, just, to, to just look at that and think about what's going on here. This, this, this Ethiopian eunuch understood that 
He couldn't just take the scripture and somehow interpret it correctly. Uh, he, 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 he needed, or at least in his mind, he needed someone else to, in the term here, guide him. How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And uh, we're given in verse 32 the passage that he was uh, reading. And uh, verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip, and we know who Philip uh, was or is, go back to, if you were to go back to Acts chapter 6, he's an elder in the church, an elder filled with the Holy Spirit. He is an anointed elder in the church. Then Philip opened his mouth and began, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so he gives to him the, the, the proper interpretation of uh, the passage that he is reading. Okay, So difficulty, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, obviously understood that the scriptures were not that simple and that he actually needed uh, others to help him. And uh, Peter gives us that warning that there are hard things that even Paul uh, writes, so New Testament things, and uh, that those who are ignorant and uh, untrained, uh, literally is what the term means, uh, and unstable, they twist those things. They, they, they incorrectly interpret them and that unto their own destruction. God's prescription then for dealing with such difficulty and making sure that we are understanding or interpreting the scriptures correctly is seeking out qualified and trained pastors, those possessing the proper character qualifications and hermeneutical or interpretive skills. Let's deal with this first piece. I say that there are certain character qualifications that go along with proper interpretation. Well, if you look at Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 8, this is part of the, uh, the parable of the soils. And uh, in Matthew's uh, version, Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, uh, Jesus says, as it relates to the good soil, uh, that, that, uh, that that person um, is a person who is able to bear good fruit under the Lord. And that uh, because, of their, uh, because of their heart or the state of their heart, that they have a good heart. Well, in Luke's gospel, uh, there's another word that's added uh, to the mix, and that is an honest and good heart. Uh, as for the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in a good and uh, an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience, with patience. So necessary, we could say, to, to being able to do that, to understand the scripture, is that the person with an honest, and good heart. They are a righteous person, meaning in they live their life. And that, that makes a lot of sense in light of what we're told in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7, where you have the qualifications uh, for elders who have been tasked with teaching and leading the people in God's word. And so uh, that they would need to meet certain qualifications. And if you were to look at those qualifications, they are indeed character qualifications. Uh, that uh, match up very nicely with uh, this little summary here of an honest and a good heart. You see, when you don't have that, your understanding for the interpretation of spiritual things is, according to Ephesians 4.18, darkened. And so uh, you become like those that Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, who are 
because of that instability, that lack of integrity, are twisting the scripture. They think they're getting it right, but in reality, uh, they are uh, twisting it, incorrectly uh, interpreting it. First uh, Timothy uh, chapter 6 also speaks uh, to this issue of character qualifications of those who do the interpreting. And in a little bit, in the, in the second uh, point or objection, we're going to see really why this uh, is the case, why this is, in other words, so necessary. Uh, you know, we don't think of thick math that way. It's like, it doesn't matter what the, the state of your heart is. It doesn't matter whether or not you have integrity. Wicked men can math just as well as righteous men, right? There's no, uh, there's no impediment caused by the, the, the character of that person. Uh, but, but that's not true again, and that's the point that you want to play at least at, at this point of our conversation, is that it does matter who's doing the interpreting. The state of their heart, who they are as a person, matters to whether or not they're getting the text right. And again, in the, the second objection, uh, I think we'll see why, uh, why that is uh, the case. Uh, but here in First uh, Timothy 6, we have in verse 4, I think, another piece uh, to this. Uh, and it's dealing with this issue of understanding or interpretation. Starting in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, uh, which we know is orthodoxy, right? True religion. Uh, here, here's why. That he is puffed up with conceit. And notice the outcome. And understands nothing. Verse and affects their ability to interpret the scriptures. Not just anyone can pick it up and do it right. It might be the 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 the, the character of that person uh, does indeed uh, matter. And again, uh, we'll see. Uh, I think more of why that is the case in this second objection. But as it relates to hermeneutical skills, these two are necessary. So I've got the right heart. Yes, check that off the list. Uh, what else? Well, uh, I need certain skills. I need training. Going back to Second Peter again, there, remember, he says two things. They are untrained. That's what makes them the ignorant. Literally, the word is untrained and unstable. So one deals with their, their skill set, the other with uh, their moral character. Uh, two things, and this, uh, this, this piece related to being ignorant uh, is the piece related or untrained to hermeneutical skills. And I've given you essentially four categories here that, that, that are important and the support to support. Uh, the first is what I call a legal orientation. A legal orientation. And what I mean by that is this, instruction unto righteousness, justice, or equity. Now, those three things we know are the same thing, righteousness, justice, and equity. So what I mean is that when you look at the scripture, if you are trained properly in how to interpret them, then you understand that everything in scripture has that as its, uh, as its ultimate goal or end. All communication is unto establishing uh, righteousness, justice, and equity through the establishing of uh, precepts that are consistent with that particular character trait. So, uh, so this is the way that we go into Scripture with this, as I call it, legal orientation. Hence the reason Isaiah 8.20 says, to the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this, it's because they have no dark. They're in the dark. 
They don't know how to, uh, to, to, they don't understand, truly understand spiritual things. They're in a spiritual darkness if they don't speak with a legal orientation. Hence the reason also, Deuteronomy 16.20 says, uh, justice and only justice you shall pursue. Hence the reason Psalm 89.14 says, the temptation of God's throne is righteous justice and equity. It's all about that. It's the reason Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, Jesus says, not one jot or tittle shall be removed from the law. And those who preach the law, even its least commandments, shall be considered great. That's the purpose of the whole of Scripture, to give us instruction unto righteousness, justice, and equity. Because if we're to be image bearers, then like God, whose throne, whose central attribute is righteousness, justice, and equity, then we those kinds of people who the foundations of our life is righteousness, justice, and equity. Romans chapter 15, a text that you should know well if you spend any time in this church listening. Uh, Romans chapter 15 Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Instruction in what? Well, uh, again, you go to the Proverbs, now moving over to the Proverbs. Proverbs 2, or Proverbs 1 rather, the very beginning of the Proverbs, wisdom, as we talked about today a little bit in practicum, understanding to know wisdom and instruction, here's our word from Romans 15, uh, now connecting it back to the Proverbs, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing. And, and look at, here. here's the end result, or here's, here's what it's for, in righteousness, justice, and equity, so that we may do what? To give prudence to the simple, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, here, legal orientation, important to uh, the correct or proper interpretation of Scripture. If I don't come to the Scripture with that kind of a mindset, uh, then I'm going to miss what it's saying. Which is why when I go to even places like Job, I'm looking for that, right? What is the legal principle that comes out of this? What is the instruction in righteousness, justice, and equity? that I am to receive. Uh, this is why Paul, after uh, presenting the gospel there in Romans chapter 3, says in 3.31, do we by this faith, Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Uh, then he defends that and says that, uh, uh, do we by this faith nullify the law? By no means we uphold it. He understands the importance of having this kind of a legal orientation if people are to take him seriously. If it's truth, it will always have uh, that legal orientation. It will fulfill or be consistent with the law. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, great example of this from uh, Paul. Uh, we'll see one from Paul, then uh, also one from Jesus. But First Corinthians chapter 9, This is how Paul went about interpreting the scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, starting in verse uh, 7, whoever serves as a, sol who serves as, as a soldier at his own expense. 
who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Meaning that you should get a return for your labors. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not ox when it treads out the grain. So what he appeals to, to support what he has just said, uh, which is this uh, appeal to be supported for their work, uh, he appeals to a passage dealing with uh, ox uh, doing work in the fields. And notice how Paul understands something about an ox. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? And again, being rhetorical, it's more of a statement than it is a question. Uh, what does he say? No, it's not. He's not really concerned for the oxen. Uh, he's concerned for us. He's concerned or he has given us that for the purpose of establishing something legal on our behalf. Instruction unto righteousness, justice, and equity. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If then we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul, having a very legal orientation as it relates to all of God's word, uh, even those passages that speak about or give instruction in relation to oxen, he said, yeah, I can see that's what it is on the surface, and uh, uh, there is a practical or a direct application to that, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I understand everything is meant for our instruction uh, in, again, righteousness, justice, and equity. And so Paul is asking that question. As he goes to the Scripture, he's asking that question. What is that instruction? And so, again, this is what I mean by legal orientation. Uh, Jesus does the same thing in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, in teaching his disciples, Matthew chapter 16, 5 through uh, 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Uh, leaven is associated with the bread. And so they think that what Jesus is saying is don't buy bread from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, Jesus, uh, as we're told in verse 8, is aware of this and actually shocked by this. Notice the statement, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? In other words, is that why I said that? Where, in other words, is your legal orientation? Do you not understand that I'm trying to give you instruction in righteousness, justice, and equity? Not who to buy your bread from. He said, yes, or excuse me, I, I skipped over, not yes. Um, 16, 9, uh, 16, uh, do, do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? Again, what is your orientation when you go into the Scriptures? Well, if it's, if it's right, if you possess the right skills, uh, then you understand when I say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'm not talking about literal bread. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching ah, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because it's not righteous, it's not just, it's not equitable. 
And so uh, both examples, or, or two examples rather, one from Paul, the other from uh, Jesus, both of them demonstrating uh, this principle that I'm calling uh, orientation. Uh, a bad example of this, or an example that uh, shows individuals that are not thinking this way uh, in their interpretation of Scripture, is uh, this uh, doctrine of penal substitution. What does penal substitution teach? Well, it teaches that Christ uh, died for the purpose of paying for our sins, that he was punished for us, that he took our penalty. That's where that term penal comes for, uh, from. Uh, well, the only way that you, can, that you can come up with that kind of uh, teaching is to deny what the law makes very explicit. And that is, is that no man can be a ransom for another. Uh, that, that, that the righteous can never suffer on behalf of the wicked or pay for their sins. Leviticus 27, 29, Numbers 35, 31 through 33, and Ezekiel 18, 20 make that very clear. Hence the reason uh, those who rightly uh, criticize those holding the penal substitution call uh, it child abuse because that's essentially what it is. For Jesus to have to pay for the sins of other people to bear the penalty for them is, is child abuse. And so uh, what, uh, what causes a person to do that? Well, they're, they're not properly trained. They don't have a legal orientation, which is exactly what we see we're to have in relation to the Scriptures. Another key piece here as it relates to skill is competency in the original languages, special genre, things like uh, prophetic texts, and overall uh, grammar. Those two are necessary if I'm going to properly interpret Scripture. Romans chapter 10, a good example of the, uh, the prophetic. Romans chapter 10, here in the, uh, the verses that I've given to you, 20 and 21. If you go up to uh, verse uh, 18... But I ask, have they not heard speaking of Israel? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, now notice in contrast, notice the adversive there, but, but of Israel, so in contrast to what he just said in verse 20, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, this is coming again from the book of Isaiah, which is a prophetic book. And so one of the things that's important to understand if you're going to do a proper uh, interpretation or correct interpretation of the scripture is understand that a prophecy functions very, very different. Uh, than what we might call didactic text. Uh, in prophecy, you can have multiple fulfillments. And uh, those fulfillments uh, do not require some level of uh, consistency historically. They will have it in principle, but never, or I shouldn't say never, uh, but not necessarily historically. What am I getting at? Well, if you, again, go back into this text, who is he speaking about in verse 20 when he says, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Well, if you were to read the rest of the, uh, the larger context here, going back all the way to chapter 9, you'd realize who he's talking about are the Gentiles. 
that is uh, who he's speaking of uh, also in verse 19 when he says, I will make you, meaning Israel, jealous of those who are not a, a nation uh, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring the Gentiles in. They'll listen. Uh, whereas for you, uh, verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And that within its context tells you too, because if it's not Israel it's talking about, then it has to be the Gentiles. That's everybody else. And so he, he, he creates, notice, a split here between the Gentiles and uh, Israel. And if you look at you, if you have a, a references in your Bible, you'll see that for those two verses, uh, you have two verses, uh, the, the first two verses of Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. And so verse 1 is in relation to verse 20 here. Verse 2 is in relation to verse 21 here. So keeping in mind then that what Paul has just done here uh, in this uh, interpretation of that text, so uh, a text that was written, you know, 500 plus years ago. He says, we have fulfillment of that now. Uh, well, when we read that particular prophecy, if you go back to Isaiah now, uh, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2, here is what you, what you realize. Uh, I was ready, it says, to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation uh, that was not called uh, by my name or did not call, literally, if you look down to the footnote, did not call upon my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. So very similar, and this is the, the text again that Paul is paraphrasing, in, in Romans uh, chapter 10. But here's the difference, and here's that prophetic piece and needing to understand how prophecy works. And Paul clearly did. When you read this in its original context, both verses 1 and 2 are in reference to Israel. This passage here, uh, meaning its original audience, who it was originally given to and who it was to be originally applied to, uh, both of these verses are referring to the same group of people, just Israel or just the Jews. In its next fulfillment, and again, this is how prophecy works. You can have multiple fulfillments. The easiest one is what we see in uh, Isaiah chapter 8 with, uh, or Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 into 8 with the virgin or uh, the woman, the young woman, shall be with child. That's fulfilled in chapter 8 with Isaiah's own son, but is later fulfilled, superlatively so, with Jesus Christ. And there you have just the, the simple change from a young woman, as it is in the Hebrew, which can mean a virgin, but just probably means young woman, in this case, Isaiah's wife, uh, and is picked up in the, uh, the, the Greek New Testament as a, a, a Parthenos, which is virgin, which specifically refers to just that. So you have a second fulfillment, which is a little bit different in that respect, but not two different people groups as it is in the next fulfillment uh, in Romans chapter 10. And that's the nature of prophecy. As I said, uh, multiple fulfillments, but not necessarily consistent historically. Like it is in the case of Isaiah 7. Uh, you have a woman who is uh, with child, a young woman, not necessarily uh, a virgin. The next time, it's a virgin. And so multiple fulfillments that are not exactly historically the same. We need to understand that if we're going to properly interpret Scripture. Things like 
uh, prophecy. And so there's an example of that. Uh, the other that uh, I've given to you here is not related to uh, prophecy. Sorry, I've got to find my place in the notes. Is uh, Yes, Matthew 22. This is as it relates to Grant, uh, because I say that uh, there needs to be an, a competency uh, in the original languages, which is what all of those in Scripture had. They knew the, the, the Hebrew. They knew the, the Greek. Uh, they understood how to handle special genre. We see that even in, in Paul, or we just saw that. But also grammar, and this one comes from Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 22, two examples of this. He actually uses this uh, to trip up the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, Matthew 22, uh, verse uh, 32. 22, verse 32. This is uh, after the Sadducees uh, come to him and try to stump him as it relates to their actually being around. They didn't believe in one. Uh, you'll see that in verse 23, the same day Sadducees came in who say that there is no resurrection. And uh, Jesus, uh, in verse 32, as a means of supporting that there is, you can start in verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, You've probably been, you've probably heard me talk about this before, so you, you you know what I'm going to say. But how many of you, before I told you this, knew how what Jesus says supports the resurrection? Probably not many of you. He said, "Okay, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Therefore, there is a resurrection." Right? How does that support the resurrection? Well, it's the fact that when speaking of these individuals, he uses the present tense. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am, meaning still now. And that's the point that Jesus is making, a point that is made on the specific grammar that is used in the original text, in the Old Testament, to speak of these individuals long after they're dead. And notice, they got it. They were smart enough to get it. Uh, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. You see, that's Jesus' point, which means grammar matters, and you need to have competency in overall grammar, because that's the whole point that Jesus is making. Uh, if, if these individuals uh, are not resurrected and in heaven right now, that's the point, that they just died and they're in the ground, uh, then God could not, after they died, speak of them in the present tense, that way. It would be, I was the God, rather than, I am, present tense. We see the same thing uh, in verses 41 through 46. Grammar, again, being the, the thing that Jesus is using to properly or correctly interpret the Scriptures, and at the same time, uh, befuddle the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So now Jesus goes on the offensive here, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He knew they were going to say this, by the way. This is a total setup. Super great. Uh, he said to them then, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
So this is Psalm 110. They knew that that was uh, what they call a messianic uh, uh, psalm or, or, or passage. And uh, Jesus then asked the question, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And what is he playing off here? The Lord said to my Lord, the possessive here, the my is David because David's the author, my Lord, the Lord God said to my Lord, hey, wait a minute, if Messiah, they understood that the, the, this particular psalm, Psalm 110, was again a messianic psalm that was speaking about the Messiah or the Christ to come. And so here it's David speaking of this one who will be his in the future son, Messiah. How does he or why rather does he speak of him as his superior, my Lord? You see, you didn't do that. A father never spoke of his son as his superior. Way around. So again, Jesus using the grammar to make his case, and no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. That's power, right? Because you 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 have an understanding that uh, this is what we call plenary inspiration, right? Every word is deliberate from God. And so that means that getting down to the jot and tittle of whether it's a past or a present tense matters. Who's the one being possessed in this particular case in verse 44? And who is the one possessing them? And what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well, in this case, David is calling a son his Lord. How is he his son? And so uh, necessary to uh, correct interpretation uh, is uh, a competency in the grammar. It matters. And the two examples I've given to you should make that uh, pretty clear. Number three, a sound biblical theology. Now, that term biblical theology really has uh, two, two meanings. The first is a governing system. So it's, it's essentially the, uh, the foil that we place over the scripture, the, the matrix that we use to put the scripture into. And it, so it's that larger framework. The gospel, we would say, is what that is. But what exactly does, does that mean? Well, um, it means that if we don't have that, then uh, what we assume the scripture to be teaching or where it is going is going to be terribly wrong. So I, I, I need that. I need the macro if I'm to understand the micro, the individual pieces. And Second uh, Timothy speaks to that. Uh, Paul, in his second epistle to Timothy, uh, actually speaks to this issue of a, a governing system uh, when he says this, follow, verse 13, 113, follow the pattern of sound words, uh, pattern there, uh, paradigmas, uh, paradigm, which we get the term paradigm from, uh, paradigm, pattern, the structure, the governing uh, system, follow the governing system of sound words that you heard from me. Follow the biblical theology that I gave you. There's a direct command to a pastor, Timothy, to do that. How necessary then is it that we have that uh, if we are uh, going to correctly interpret the scriptures? Uh, I'd say pretty important. A second, uh, or, or a second way that this term uh, biblical theology is used is as an evolution of a particular subject. So, uh, you'll hear about, they'll say, the, the biblical theology of uh, sin or, or different subjects. And it's essentially taking whatever that subject is and, and moving it through the scripture and seeing how 
man's understanding or the people of God understand that term over time or if there are changes or developments in that. A better example would be heaven. What they understood of heaven in the Old Testament is very different than how we understand it post-Christ because of all of the teaching that Jesus did on heaven. And that's why we, we can't take our understanding of heaven and attempt to plug it back into places like uh, uh, Ecclesiastes uh, 12 or even things that David says in the Psalms or, or where Job talks about going to Sheol. They didn't really have uh, a firm grasp. The information wasn't there as to what heaven was really like. And so uh, biblical theology attempts to, to understand how that development takes place. Uh, as I say here, it's the evolution, again, of a subject. And, and we see that in places like the book of Hebrews, where you have essentially three main topics. You have Sabbath, you have priesthood, and you have atonement. And the beauty of those three, uh, just even breaking the, the book down into that, is these are the, the, the three key uh, components necessary to salvation. You need Sabbath, you need a priesthood. It's the Sabbath, uh, the priest working in Sabbath to bring about atonement, which ultimately ends or accomplishes salvation. And so you have the development of those, uh, those three subjects from uh, their, uh, initial, uh, their initial introduction into the scripture or redemptive history, uh, the Sabbath going all the way back to God's Sabbath rest and how that ultimately developed or evolved into a, a land and, and, and how that was later then talked about after they entered the promised land as being ultimately the rest with God in heaven for eternity. And, and how what we do when we come to church on Sunday is we come into the place that is to represent that on earth now. And then you have from there the development of the priesthood, moving through the Arianic priesthood all the way up to uh, this priesthood, which was already foreshadowed in the person of Mechizeldek as Jesus as a priest in the order of Mechizeldek. And why that his priesthood is so much more superior than that of the former priesthood. And then from there you go into the atonement, which started with the blood of bulls and goats, only to find out that ultimately that was just a placeholder to what was to truly come and make atonement in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's really the breakup of the book. You, you start in chapter 3 and you go into 4 and he deals with the Sabbath issues. 5 to 7 is the priesthood. And then 8 to 10, which after that is just application and warnings additionally to not fall off of this path that has been so clearly established through redemptive history uh, is the peace related to atonement. And so uh, biblical theology, important to understand that, uh, especially for a book like the book of Hebrews hermeneutical skills, a sound uh, then biblical theology. And number four, uh, the one this is probably the one that we think of the most, familiarity with the entire scriptures and the ability to prove your interpretation not only uh, in its given context, what we sometimes call the immediate context, but also uh, the rest of the scriptures. And uh, this idea of being able to do that or demonstrate or to prove uh, is picked up again in the pastorals in places like 2 Timothy uh, 2.15 uh, when Paul says these uh, words to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Uh, how do you do that? Rightly handling the word of truth. 
So all those phrases, present yourself approved, no need to be ashamed, rightly handling or interpreting the scripture. What does it all mean? Well, demonstrating or proving your interpretation is how you gain approval, avoid shame, and show yourself to be a person in, uh, correctly interpreting the scriptures. Going back to his uh, first epistle, speaking again to these types of things or skills that are needed, verse 13 of chapter 4, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching, or literally there, that word, to proving. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And there, uh, by that word progress, we know that Timothy wasn't an expert coming in. He had uh, enough of a competency and a familiarity to put him in the place that he was in as a legitimate pastor, as a, a properly trained pastor, but he wasn't there. There was progress that would need to be demonstrated as he uh, grew with his people in the understanding of Scripture. His ideas of practicing and immersing uh, include then uh, there in verse 15, both what he said prior, the reading or familiar and teaching or proving. Exhortation is the, uh, is the piece related to then uh, preaching or what we think of today as teaching. And then you have verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Practice carefulness, in other words, in your interpretation. This is what made the difference between what Jesus did and what the Pharisees did. We saw that, or we've seen that in places like Matthew chapter 12, uh, where they are accusing Jesus of violating the Sabbath. And Jesus gives to them uh, three lines of support, two of them coming historically from the Testament, where they were sloppy in their understanding and familiarity with the Scriptures, uh, hence the reason uh, they believed he was at fault, when in reality, uh, he was vindicated by what he was doing. Matthew uh, 22, verse 29, text that, uh, or uh, section that we were just in with the resurrection piece there, Jesus says uh, to uh, the religious leaders, uh, you do not understand the scriptures. And he's again condemning them. And this is the reason that they were misinterpreting it all the time. They lacked familiarity with the Scriptures. Matthew 24, verse 15, interesting text. They're talking about the abomination of desolation. And Matthew, these are Jesus' words, and Matthew adds his own editorial note into it and says, let the reader understand. And what you're to understand is where this comes from, which is Daniel uh, the book of Daniel. And, and yet, he's putting that in there to say, hey, if you don't understand, if you're not familiar with the Scriptures, which up to this point was just the Old Testament, then you're not going to be able to interpret correctly what it is that Jesus is talking about. And so again, familiarity uh, with the Scriptures, the ability to prove your interpretation, not only from uh, the given context, but also the rest of the Scripture. Jesus does uh, this, the rest of Scripture, uh, Luke 24, 27, it says he started with Moses and showed from there how all of the, how all the scripture pointed to him. Uh, Paul does the same thing in Acts 28. Acts 28. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him in his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening, and he expounded to them, testifying 
testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, which is, the, as we've talked about before, uh, that phrase, law of Moses and from the prophets, means the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. And so uh, that skill is also uh, necessary to uh, proper interpretation. And all of these skills are forged, as I say here, in the fires of careful and constant practice and hours, hours of meditation. And as I told you in uh, practicum today, that just uh, the word meditation just refers to the pursuit of understanding. This is the reason uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 5, uh, the writer there, scolds uh, his audience uh, is for not giving themselves to this kind of uh, time, to meditating and seeking to understand what they had already been taught. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant notice, practice to distinguish good from evil. And uh, he's chiding them by that because he says in the verses prior, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle God, of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And so practice is necessary. Spending time, hours in meditation, that's a Joshua, that was God's command. You may remember this going back to Joshua in relation to uh, his word. And if he was to lead the people in God's word, in God's truth, then he would need to meditate on the book of the law. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Careful, constant practice, hours of meditation. Again, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, talk about this and desiring that above all things to understand and what it gives or what we gain by it. Finally, Psalm 119, verse 99, David says this, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. And there you see both the skill aspect as well as the, as well as the moral aspect. I keep your precepts. And so because I have that kind of a heart, I understand. I understand. And so all of this packed into or as a uh, response to uh, that first point, that first myth, the scriptures are simple enough that a child can understand them. Well, I don't know many children who have uh, these four skills at the very least. Now, maybe there's a, there's a little prodigy running around somewhere. I mean, Jesus had this ability even when he was a child. We know that he was in the temple and he was, uh, he was confounding the, the teachers that were there. Uh, but we all know that Jesus is very different than us. And so uh, to, to, to have that kind of thinking that you can just sit down and do it yourself, uh, that's a myth. And hopefully I've uh, debunked that for you. Number two, here the second one, the Holy Spirit helps me to understand the scriptures. So I don't need anointed pastors. So the first one is I don't need qualified and trained pastors. The second is I don't need anointed pastors. And as I said, I think this is the piece that helps us to answer uh, that, that first piece that we were talking about, why it's so important uh, that uh, you be qualified the Holy Spirit helps me to understand the scriptures. I don't need these kinds, therefore I don't need these kinds of men. And uh, again, this is a very popular 
something that people say, the Holy Spirit's the one that gives me understanding. Well, according to the Bible, I hate to burst your bubble, but the only ones that are given the Holy Spirit for the purpose of understanding the scriptures are the anointed pastors of the church. The Bible never, ever, 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 and ever, never, 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 ever says that the Holy Spirit is given. Now, is the Holy Spirit given to everyone? Yes, but not for the purpose of interpretation. Please don't hear me as saying you didn't get the Holy Spirit when you were baptized. But his job in helping you is not for the purpose of interpreting the scriptures. That's something that has always, always historically, from stem to stern, has always only been reserved for the, those who are anointed. And in the Old Testament, it was the prophet, the priest, and the kings, those who were leading or responsible for leading the people in God's truth. That's always been the case. So why would we think it's any different under the New Covenant or the, in the New Testament? Well, it's not. It continues uh, to be that uh, way. And we'll talk here uh, in, in a little bit why people think that a little bit more, where that came from. Uh, but let me show you why I, why I say that. Well, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, here it's talking about the gifts that, that God gave. Um, and he gave apostles, the prophets, uh, the evangelists or missionaries, and the, the shepherds and teachers or shepherd teachers uh, is that is that uh, last category there. And, and some of you have a footnote that says it literally that, the shepherd teachers. So you have shepherds, and we've talked about these as the ruling elders, and then you have the shepherd teachers, those who are anointed to do the teaching. And we see that distinction even in the Old Testament, do we not, between the Levites and the priests. And so you have the, the, the same design, and according to uh, Isaiah 66, 21, a text that you should know uh, well by now, but let me just go there again, and if, if you're not familiar with it, please turn there so that you can see this for yourself. Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 21. Isn't it neat all the fun things that come out of your Bible when you read it? Especially your Old Testament, right? Uh, here, speaking about the new covenant to come, Verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in the litters and on the mules and on the dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And again, this is all speaking. Uh, if you don't believe me, take the time to look at it. You'll, you'll, you'll come away with the same conclusion. This is all speaking about what's to come under the new covenant. And then it says this in verse 21, and some of them, of these people who come to me, to my house, to the house of the Lord, some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites. So the idea that the, 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 those, uh, those two categories or those two offices don't exist today is, is baloney. And really, I believe that that's what Ephesians 4.11 is talking about when it makes the distinction between shepherds and shepherd uh, teachers. The distinction between the New Covenant Levites and the New Covenant uh, priests. And the priests were the only ones who were uh, anointed. Anointed, given, in other words, the Holy Spirit for the purpose of leading the people, the Spirit helping them then to understand the Scriptures for the purpose of leading the people in God's truth, in righteous, righteousness, justice equity, uh, which means this is how we're to understand and should be understanding passages like John uh, 16. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. One thing you don't want to do when you read your Bible is read the you as you. 
right? You need to ask the question, who is the you in the immediate context here? Because, because it might be general congregation. It might. And, and then you can make that kind of application. Uh, but, 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 but you need to ask, ask that question first, right? Uh, you, 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 you do the, uh, uh, you, you, you need to do the exegesis portion or the interpretation portions be, portion before you do, uh, you do the application piece. What is it saying? You know, what's going, as I teach Ryan and, and, the, and the other guys, what they were part of it is that what's going on before what's the point? And what, what's going on is, is, is it takes in or entails finding out who the, who the you is here. Uh, well, again, if you were to look at the context, you'd understand that who is going to be guided into all truth by the Spirit are the apostles. Hence the reason by John 20, you know the text, by John 20, Jesus comes to them and says, Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, even so now I am sending you. And when he had said that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. There it is. You're going to get it. He's going to lead you into all truth. Don't worry, I'm leaving. That's okay, uh, because you're going to have a helper, and he's going to be with you until the day you die. He's going to be there to help you interpret the Scriptures. And uh, then you go to places like uh, the epistles. First uh, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Some of you may be thinking, most of you have heard this before, but some of you may be thinking, why did I do this before? In the churches I was in before? I don't know. Blame them, not me. Chapter 2, uh, 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Who, who's the I here? Paul. With you, who? The church, the Corinthian church. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of spirit and of power. Have you ever asked the question, what is he talking about when he says a demonstration of the spirit? Well, I believe he's talking about the very possessed by the spirit to interpret the scripture. So that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of the sage or the rulers of the sage who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the, uh, for our glory. None of the rulers of the sage understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us, Paul and the other anointed pastors, men like him, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we, Paul, and these other ministers, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, however, judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The we there is referring to Paul and uh, uh, his band of accompanying ministers. You go back to, uh, go back to verse 1 there. Paul, uh, called by the will of God and to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, or whatever, how you ever say that. And these ministers that Paul would travel with, this band of ministers, these anointed teachers. And when you understand it that way, all of a sudden it makes sense. He says, no one's to judge us. 
He's not talking about everybody. He says, those of us who, who, who are getting our help from the Spirit of God. Who's understood the mind of Christ? Well, the Spirit understands the mind of Christ. And He gives us that to do our job. Just like He always does. Again, you go back to the Old Testament. That's how He did in the Old Testament. Why wouldn't He do the same in the New? The 2 Corinthians chapter 3, incredibly important text as it relates to the issue of salvation being dispensed through these ministers. He talks about that in the first uh, four verses and then says this, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the letter gi- or but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? God's made us sufficient by giving us this spirit. Who's the us there? Well, again, you'll find that it's Paul and his traveling band of ministers. Not everybody. Not everybody. First Thessalonians, turning over there. First Thessalonians. Again, our gospel came to you very similar to what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How did it come in the Holy Spirit? Because it came by men who were filled, anointed with the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1.12 says exactly the same thing. You see similar words in 2 Peter 1.21. And finally, 1 John chapter 2, a text that I would encourage you to turn to. This one I want to do a little grammar with for you, but uh, starting in verse 18, children, it is the last hour and you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for had they been of us, had they been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So the, the big thing here. Uh, to make sure you understand is, again, who the us and who are the uh, who the you are. And if you go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, it becomes pretty clear. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Who's he talking about? Well, Uh, He's talking about those who witnessed or saw Jesus and were a part of his traveling band. We know this from places like Acts chapter 1. This was one of the qualifications to be an apostle. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So to the congregation, we proclaim that to you. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So plugging that back then into uh, those verses we just read here, uh, you have heard, from us, that antichrists are coming, they have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. These who claim to be teachers or claim to know or were teaching false things, those who were antichrists, the they is referring to the antichrists who have come. They showed themselves to be that by their going out. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. And that then, the immediate context for what he says in verse 20. 
but you have, and here it is in the ESV, been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. You, the congregation, have been anointed. Uh, horrible translation. If you have the NAS, if you don't, talk to Robert Haskins. He loves the NAS. Um, it's a present active indicative here. The, it should read, but you have, not you have been. Have been is a, what they call an imperfect or a pluperfect. Uh, which means something that happened in the past with continuing results into the present. Uh, that's not what's being said here. You have uh, an anointing ex accusative uh, singular. Literally, you have an anointed one by the Holy One, and because of that, you have all knowledge. What is he saying here? Again, get the context. We've taught you the right way. We shared this with you. You go back to verse 1. We're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. We're writing these things so that you too may have fellowship as we have fellowship with Christ, that you too, verse 3, may have fellowship with His Son, with God's Son. We're writing these things. You have all that knowledge because you have us, the anointed pastors, because you have us, not Antichrist. You know they were not the anointed pastors. They weren't the ones with the Holy Spirit understanding the Scripture. They are Antichrist. How do you know that? They went out from us. You, you have knowledge because of those who are legitimately anointed, literally, but you have an anointed one or anointed ones, it's singular here, anointed one by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. As a matter of fact, he picks it up again in verse 24, or this idea, look at verse 24, let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Who are those trying to deceive you? We know from the context, Antichrist. Who are the ones that are teaching? People like the Apostle John, anointed pastors, why they write these things, why they teach these things. But the, again, accusative singer, the anointing, or the, it says here the anointing, the ESV, but it's the anointed one that you have received from him abides with you, and you have therefore no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointed one teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. Kathos, kathos, esi, I can't read my own handwriting here. Uh, but the term is, uh, the, the word here is, uh, just as he has taught you, abide in him. You, 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 the text is all about these people being secure because they had a legitimate pastor to lead them. That's really what he's saying. He's saying, don't be deceived by these other individuals and the people that are saying these things. Uh, don't be deceived by them. You know them not to be legitimate by the fact that they went out from us. You, however, you know you're on the right path because God's given you legitimately trained and anointed pastors. That's his point. That's his point. So again, uh, this term, uh, and by the way, Daniel, the Septuagint rendering of uh, Daniel, the word is charisma, from which we get charismatic from, this word anointing. Uh, in the Greek, uh, we see this exact translation in uh, Daniel 9, uh, 26 uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering, is uh, anointed one. So again, this idea is a myth that the Holy Spirit is helping you to understand the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit is not helping you to understand the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit wants you to go to the church, to the house of the Lord, which, by the way, if you pick that theme up and move it through the Scripture, you'll see that when anyone needed help from the Lord or needed to seek out the Lord, they went to the house of the Lord. Not to, the, to their Bible sitting in the corner on the couch with a cup of coffee and figured it out. 
It doesn't work that way. The final one, the final point, this one should go by fairly quickly, and it, it ties to these first two. You are safer trusting yourself than another man when it comes to understanding what the Bible teaches. This is what we call solo scriptura, right? You are safer trusting yourself than another man when it comes to understanding what the Bible teaches. You may have thought this at times. And if you haven't thought it, you, you, you probably acted like it at times. I'm always safer betting on myself. Well, let's just think about that. Unless you meet the criteria given above, believing that it is safer to trust yourself than someone else forgets the fact that we trust people more qualified in a specific area over ourselves all the time. The stupidity of such a statement is thus revealed when considering an equivalent. It is safer to trust yourself than your doctor when it comes to medical issues, especially those which will determine whether you live or die. Why would you trust yourself, an untrained hack, whose medical ignorance far outweighs your medical knowledge, over someone who has spent countless hours in study and demonstrating their competency, whose medical knowledge far outweighs their medical ignorance? Why would you do that? Guaranteed, if your pastor has been properly trained, then the ratios of biblical knowledge to ignorance are similar, and the gap between you and him equally substantial. Again, like the average patient in relation to their doctor. Hence the reason pastors were at one time referred to as spiritual physicians. Spiritual physicians. And uh, I say here in uh, the second footnote there, and sorry, I, I, I didn't... Uh, talk to you about the first one, but the second one here. It's an unfortunate reality today that most men functioning as pastors have not been properly trained, and so they wouldn't fit into this category. This, however, doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater by viewing all pastors this way. It instead means taking the time to find those who are trained and never taking them for granted. It should also be mentioned that Scripture makes explicit those with the greatest potential for leading us astray are those who lack the proper training or qualifications to serve as pastors. And that's 2 Peter 3 that we were just in. Because of their lack of training, because of their lack of integrity, they twist the scripture to their own destruction. So here's the big question. Does that mean we follow pastors blindly? Notice my answer, hardly. We must always be Berean. But this connotation, to be Berean, refers to taking a position of teachable trust and self-education not distrust and suspicion, which is often how I hear that communicated. Oh, you better be Berean, as though the Bereans were like uh, not trusting Paul. They're like, who is this guy? Let's search in the scriptures. And that's, that's how people take it. But if you text, and, and I want us to do that, Acts chapter 17, you'll see uh, that I think or that I've uh, correctly or accurately represented it taking a position of teachable trust and self-education, not distrust and suspicion. That's not what it means to be Berean. That's what it means to be demonic. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Here's why. They received the word with all eagerness. So Paul's preaching, and they're not like, I don't know. What he says, I don't know. They received it with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. So here's what, or why rather, they were more noble. They were teachable to what Paul was saying, though they had not heard such teaching before. In other words, they gave him the benefit of the doubt. 
They received, again, the word with all eagerness. And secondly, they took the time to educate themselves according to the scriptural support that they provided. They examined the scriptures daily. But you see the difference? Yeah, I want the support. I'm not just taking whatever the pastor says. I want support, but I, but, but I, but I come at it very different. I'm not, I'm not a negative or suspicious. I don't have, like First Timothy talks about, evil suspicions. The proper question, therefore, is never, should we or shouldn't we trust another man? But rather, who is the demonstrated and qualified expert? Leaving your life in his hands will always be the safest choice. Let me just go back and read that first footnote that I missed. This was in relation to people believing that they have the Holy Spirit or they can interpret the scriptures for themselves. That the pastor teachers or anointed pastors are the only ones possessing the spirit for the purpose of interpretation or discerning truth for leading God's people is consistent. And this I've already mentioned with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, given only to the priests, prophets, and kings in the Old Testament. So where did this idea come from? Well, the idea that all believers now possess such an anointing or spirit for the purpose of interpretation. We do possess the spirit, but not all of us possess it for the purpose of interpretation. Where did it come from? Well, it came from the big dummy Martin Luther and his doctrine on the priesthood of all believers. And uh, his doctrine on this came from a gross misinterpretation of Revelation uh, 1.6, which says, uh, just as uh, it's just a a, a repeating of what is said in Exodus 19.6, what God tells that first generation, that I will make you a kingdom of priests. And uh, Revelation 1.6 says that that's what we are now. Well, if you go back to Exodus 19.6, not everybody in that community were priests. What it's saying is, I will give you a community who, which has priests so that you could be saved. That's the whole point of it. That's the good news, is that if, if I make you a kingdom that has priests, then that means you have a means by which to come into covenant relationship with me. You're not just a kingdom, you're a kingdom with priests unto me. And so in Revelation 1-6, when John says that, and he says that about the new covenant community, that's really good news, that we now have a kingdom with priests, because without them, we can't be saved. And uh, the other passage is uh, Revelation uh, 20, uh, verse 6. And this one you can turn to or you can just listen. Uh, but here again, it's, it's picked up. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over the second death, he has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And uh, Luther and the gang said, well, see here, it's everybody uh, that's going to be uh, in the first resurrection, which is every true believer. And uh, they, it says, this group of people will be priests of God and of Christ. Uh, well, that's true, whoever that group of people uh, are uh, but or is. But if you go back to, ch- to verse 4, which is the context, notice, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who were given authority to, uh, uh, to whom the authority to judge was committed. So those that he's talking about specifically in verse 6 as sharing in the first resurrection are those to whom authority was given for the purpose of judgment, which means who is he talking about? The legitimate priests. Not everybody. Not everybody. That passage, even though we will all experience a resurrection, is not uh, concerned with that. It's not referring to uh, everybody. Okay, well, I I hope that that's uh, been helpful. Hopefully, you can have a better appreciation for what takes place. And, 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 and instead of looking at things the way that so many have, 
uh, that have uh, caused us trouble in the past, that you can see that there's a real value in, in, in what it is that God has given to us. It's meant to keep us safe, not something that we uh, should instead be suspicious of. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you, your word is clear. And uh, the, the problem is never that. Uh, even though it's complex, when we understand it, it's, it's clear. And, and, and again, the, the problem is not that. It's that so often what your word clearly teaches uh, is in direct contrast and in opposition to what the world tells us your word is teaching. And so, Father, I would pray right now that for your people, that, uh, that your spirit would be strong upon them, to see the necessity to again be disciples, to again be like children, to submit to what it is that your word teaches and uh, to embrace it with uh, happy hearts because uh, what you have established for us is, is, to, is to keep us safe and to get us uh, to get home with you. Make it so we pray in Jesus our Savior's name. Amen.